Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Here we are opening this, this letter of Jude. Uh, this is a monumental letter. Remember, Jude wanted to write. He opened his letter. I wanted to write to you just this wonderful letter about our common salvation. And let's just sing the old hymns and, and let's just rejoice in this. But he said, I, I couldn't do that. The Holy Spirit moved him, so he was willing to write this letter that is sounding a warning. There's a warning. There's a threat, there's a danger, and it's false teachers. It's anyone who brings any other message than Christ alone saves. Whether that's inside of Christianity or Christendom or outside of Christianity, he's sounding a warning. He reminded his readers of three historical examples, and he took them back to Israel and their rebellion and the angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. And he reminded them judgment came swiftly, justly, and drastically upon those individuals. He reminded them of the three errors of the false teachers, that these individuals are defiant and defiled and disrespectful. And condemnation came swiftly upon those who claimed to be superior to Scripture. So Jude was describing all who bring another gospel, which Paul says in Galatians, and we study that really there isn't another gospel, but they call it good news, but there isn't any other good news coming. And so he describes these individuals as your worst-case scenario. This is a threat like terrorism that must be taken seriously. Religious people who attempt to add to Scripture or take away from Scripture are not from God, loved ones. They do not speak for God. But instead, they pervert and they distort the gospel. What is the gospel that God created, you and me and everybody, were made in His image? God created us to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him forever. Oh, our sins, our sins, we separated from God, we're separated, and sins cannot be removed by doing good deeds. So paying the price for your sin and my sin, Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, took to himself flesh, was born of a virgin, and he lived the sinless life, the life that you and I can never live. And he chose the cross. He chose the nails. And he went and he was suspended between heaven and earth. And he bore the sin and he bore the shame that you and I deserve. And he laid down his life for sinners. And he was buried and he rose again the third third day so that everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ alone is given life that never ends. It's the gospel. It never gets old. Most of my job and ministry is not to bring something new. It's to remember, remember, remember. It's to remind and remind. It's like parenting. Reminding and reminding and reminding. I thought I told you this already. And then we remember as parents and grandparents, hasn't the Lord told me that already? How many times am I forgetting what I already know? The difference is freedom or bondage. 
light and darkness. So here's the half-brother of the Lord. And what I want us to begin to look at now as we move in a little further into this letter is that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he's now, I'm picking up where he's functioning a little bit like a brother. And he didn't start his letter with, I'm his brother, listen to me. But as a brother, he's defending, I'm never gonna, I'm, I'm never going back to where I was before because you remember, Jude didn't believe when Jesus was there and his ministry was unfolding. Jude was one of the brothers saying, why don't you go up to Jerusalem if you're really somebody special, Jesus? Until he saw his brother alive from the dead and then it all came together that there is something drastically different about my brother. And so he's never going back. Now he's engaging with these people who are maligning and lying about his brother Jesus, the Son of God, and of what the apostles have given and established the church. And he is now taking them to task to say, You're talking about my brother. Some of you have brothers, and you know what it is to defend. And you'll mess around with your brother, and you'll wrestle with your brother. But if somebody else starts messing with your brother, this fight is on, right? This is, this is Jude. There's nothing they can say that can make him say, yeah, well, you know, maybe you're right. No, they're talking about his brother, the son of God. So he's writing, and you'd think, just when we can move on now, no. Jude compares the false teachers to Cain, to Balaam, and Korah, filled with hate, murder, greed, rebellion. So people like this, as we looked at last Sunday, they're bad company. You don't want to be influenced by them. And what are we allowing to influence us in our lives? And here's another note. We also need to be aware of how we can have bad thinking ourselves. So we are not taking Jude and saying, so I'm better than other people. And what the message is, is I need to watch out for other people. Okay, I need to beware of deception in here. I need to be humble. We need to be humble when we're dealing with other people because we can all be prone to wander. And that keeps our feet on the ground and that keeps our knees bent and humble before the Lord saying, Lord, do I see any of this in me? Isn't it easy to always find out about everybody else? Well, I think they and they, they, they. What about the person that the Lord is patient with that you see in the morning in the mirror? Oh, the Lord is so patient. So just when you think we can move on, to me, it's feeling a little bit like Jude is, is kind of waterboarding these false teachers. He's like not letting them up for air. Like he's wanting them to be dealt with, and so he won't look away, and he won't let the church look away because they're corrupt, and they're godless in how they talk and in how they live. So we're going back to Jude. We're going to start again in verse 8 because this is one section here. And although it's taken us, I think this is our third week in this section, he's still talking about these people. And what I want us to focus on, and you, you pay attention and listen to all of the times when he's saying these people, they, them, these, like he's, he's, and he doesn't name anyone. Across the page in 3 John, the apostle in my Bible, right across the page, he names Diotrephes and Demetrius. Jude doesn't name anybody. 
He's simply saying these people, them, they, watch for them and watch for this even in our own hearts. So verse eight, he says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves." Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these, this is our text for today, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed, easy for me to say, boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And this is the word of the Lord. So today we're going to look at verses 14, 15, and 16. What should we remember? And what do we need to recognize in order for us to unmask ungodliness? What do we need to remember and what do we need to recognize in order to unmask ungodliness? And this is what, this is what Jude in love, he loves these people. He loves others. And so he's writing to them this message of warning. First of all, and we just have two points to the message today, remember the old prophecy. Remember the old prophecy. And we see this in verses 14 and 15 that Jude reached way back to ancient times regarding the people in his day and even the people in our day, these certain people. And so he says it, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying. So we need to remember, okay? See, he's saying, remember, you're, you're forgetting something. Remember the old prophecy. And we need to remember, loved ones, that the word of God will not fail. The word of God will never fail. So he's going back. Well, who is it that gave this prophecy and to whom did it pertain? Now, keep in mind that Jude is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter, he declared how Scripture came about. 2 Peter 1 and verse 21, a verse that we're familiar with. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how Scripture has come to be. The Word of God was the Holy Spirit carrying along men as they wrote. 
And the idea here is this carried along is wind filling sails of a ship. How is the ship moving? The wind is carrying that ship in a various direction, influenced by which way the sails are turned, which way the rudder is. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul the Apostle, through Peter, through Mark, through Matthew, and so through John, and we see the scripture is different. It reflects their personality, just as you might be writing notes today with a certain kind of pen on a certain kind of paper, and you have a certain kind of handwriting, and the person next to you is writing the very same from a different perspective. But what we would not say is that our notes are inspired of God. My sermon, to the degree that it's scripture, is inspired, but when it's beyond scripture, it's not inspired. It just maybe will be useful in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this revelation from God, it came through Enoch. It came through Enoch. And here Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and remember now, the Holy Spirit existed before the world was ever created, before the foundation of the earth. The the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all existed, eternal, eternally uncreated. And so the Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit, when Enoch walked the earth, the seventh from Adam, is the same Spirit that Jesus was yielded to, that his ministry was marked by, the same Spirit that Jude is under the influence of, the inspiration of in writing this letter. It's not a different Spirit. So there's been no loss in information. The divine author of Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel which are also very apocalyptic, end times. The Spirit, through Jude, reminded his readers about the scriptural record from Enoch, the seventh from Adam. And Jude says he prophesied. So let's unpack this a little bit. Who's the personality behind this reference? Who is this Enoch, all right? There's a couple of Enochs in the Old Testament. There's an Enoch in Genesis 4 that is born to Cain. That's not the Enoch that he has in mind. He declares it's the seventh from Adam. If you go with me in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, we're going to look at this account, and we're going to actually see uh, in just a few moments, we'll see everything in Scripture that we have of Enoch, all right? And, and perhaps this is another reason why Jude is often uh, not a heavily used book for sermon series. There's some challenges to it. And we're going to see this a, a little bit in our study today, so I, I trust you're ready, all right? A little, a little exciting here, all right? Genesis chapter 5, this is just uh, the, the genealogy, all right? Adam's descendants. Genesis 5, you see it in there, there in your Bible. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in the likeness of God, all right? So that's the imago dei. You're made in the image of God. Every human being, pre-born to elderly, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, it doesn't matter what family you are born in, you bear the image of God. It's intrinsic value. It's not value based on your bank account or your education or your accomplishments. You are made in the image of God. Therefore, you have been given life and you represent your creator and he's the one who's given you breath and given you life and all things will come back to him. All right, so listen to the creation order here. Verse two, what did God ordain in creation? Here it is. 
male and female, binary. You have to have both to have babies. This is God's design, and it's a good design. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son. Imagine this, fellas. 130 years old. We're just getting started, Eve. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. All right, so he's just skipped right over Cain, right over Abel, and he's going to the, the lineage, all right, the descendants. Verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. That's a long life. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, after he fathered Kenan, 815 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalahel something like that. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. These are the verses you want to get in the, let's read around the room, okay? No, no, not that one. All right. He fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years. And he had other sons and daughters. We also have many, many weddings just happened. So if you're looking for names for your children and, you know, kind of unused names, you're welcome. All right. When Jared lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, He's a little faster to the game of having children here. He fathered Methuselah. Enoch, now this is significant here. This is the Enoch we, we're, we're getting to. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and he had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He didn't die. He walked with God. So this is an unusual individual. There's only one other person in the Old Testament that didn't die, and it was Elijah. So this is significant, this individual. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, it'll come on the screen, 1 Chronicles 1. There's just a brief human genealogy. It's much more succinct, up to Enoch. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, I think I'm totally not saying that right, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now think about this. What does the name Methuselah mean? The name Methuselah means when he dies, it shall come. Methuselah, when he died, the flood came. So here's something through 
Enoch, who had a son named Methuselah, he named his son when he dies, when Methuselah dies, it shall come. And then the great global flood comes in Noah's time after Methuselah dies. In the New Testament, the genealogy that is recorded in Luke chapter 3 traces Jesus' descendants all the way back, his ancestry all the way back to Adam. Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus from Abraham to Jesus, but we go backwards in Luke's genealogy, verse 37 of Luke chapter 3, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So there's two different genealogies and how they go about. Matthew's audience was Jewish, Hebrew, so he was writing to them to say, this is the one you've been waiting on that was promised to our father Abraham, whereas Luke is writing to the world, to the globe, to say, I'm presenting to you Jesus, Messiah for the nations. And this is the one promised Adam, Seth, and on down the line, and Jesus is qualified. He is worthy. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, by faith Enoch, all right? So Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. All of these individuals from the Old Testament that died not seeing Jesus yet, but by faith they saw Messiah will come. So here we see in Hebrews 11:5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found, why? Because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So that's the person behind what Jude is saying. This personality behind this prophecy. And if you are like me, you're saying, wait a second, I didn't see anything other than he named his son. When he dies, it shall come. I didn't hear anything of the prophecy. Where is Jude getting this prophecy from? So now we come to the difficulty with this reference. We have everything that we need, and we've read in Scripture, but we didn't come up with this prophecy from Enoch in our Bibles. So what is Jude talking about? Jude is most likely citing a quote from the non-biblical, from the apocryphal book known as the book of Enoch. Now, what do we make of this? Is Jude saying then that the book of Enoch is Scripture? No, that's not what he's saying. And church fathers wrestled with this down through uh, the early centuries of, okay, if Jude quoted the book of Enoch, does that mean that the book of Enoch should be regarded as Scripture? And they came to the conclusion, no. And then some said, well, wait a second, if Jude is quoting the book of Enoch, then maybe that means that Jude should not be included in our Bibles as part of the canon, and maybe it's not Scripture. So they had to work through that. They had to wrestle through that. They concluded that Jude was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Enoch, which we do not have, an apocryphal book, we don't have the full record of this book. We have parts of this book. And even Jude's quotation is not precise. It's not exact. So that led to some conflict of, did he forget some of it? I believe that leads us to the conclusion 
that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Enoch walked with God, the Spirit that gave him a prophecy, the Spirit didn't forget. It's the same Spirit. And through Jude is writing, here, this is a prophecy to Jewish people specifically that they would know this. It's from the mouth of God and we need to remember it and pay attention. So then what would be the practicality of this reference. Why would Jude cite Enoch in this letter? Just to get, make pastors sweat preparing a sermon? Make small group leaders like, oh man, oh no, somebody's going to ask me a question. Well, let's, let's, let's understand this. This prophecy from Jude doesn't add anything about Enoch, doesn't add anything that we didn't already have about the coming of Jesus, his second coming. It doesn't give us anything extra that we were missing that we didn't get from Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, throughout the Old Testament when Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, preached himself from all, all the Old Testament. So there's not something here, well, we didn't know Jesus was going to come again and bring judgment. No, we knew that. It's replete throughout the Old Testament. So it doesn't add any new information to Christ's return, but it's a general description that is in line with the rest of Scripture. So then why include it? Jude, why? Why did you do this to pastors and, and students of the Bible? Well, there's two suggestions that I would, I would offer today. Number one is this, the material, and talking about the book of Enoch, it was familiar to Jewish audiences. Familiar to Jewish audiences as it related to the end of times and to the coming of Christ. Jude is Scripture. The book of Enoch is not. It's outside of Scripture. But this quote from the book of Enoch, it was helpful. Jude is going to make his point clearer, especially if he's dealing with Judaizers who are trying to blend Christianity with Judaism. And he's going to write to them saying, your own history, your own writings, they point to you that what I'm saying and what Scripture says is true, judgment is coming. You know this. Jude knew the authenticity and the true identity of his half-brother beyond anyone else arguing against Christian doctrine. So he used their own fanciful imaginations that here was a prophecy from Enoch and, and where it all came to in conversations of, of Enoch and all of it was compiled in this book outside of the Bible, oral tradition that had just developed and blossomed and gone all different types, types of directions. He's simply saying this. You should know this from your own history. This prophecy. So there's a revelation through Enoch, and there's a revelation. Let's get to what he's really dealing with here, and this is about the ungodly. It's a revelation from God about the ungodly. And Jude says it was also about these. Jude's spirit-inspired application of Enoch's prophecy, this old prophecy, he said, let, me, let me tell you who he's talking about, these, the false teachers. Jude is relentless here in making his case, supplying plenty of evidence, and then he's actually asking for a verdict. Don't ride the fence. 
You can't ride the fence and, and as C.S. Lewis put it, and have Jesus as some great moral teacher. You know, something went wrong and he died. And people followed him just like they followed other influential people. No, C.S. Lewis says he's either liar, lord, or he's a lunatic. He didn't leave it open to just be a, you know, just give him some respect. Peace be upon him, as Muslims say. Let's give respect to Jesus. That doesn't solve anything. You must surrender to Jesus. And that's what Jude is at here. Now, when you think about prophecy, it's helpful. If you ever have driven into mountains, you know, not into the mountain, but you've driven out to see the mountains. If you've driven out to Denver and you look and you see the mountains off in the distance. I grew up in Montana. And it looks like it's just one solid, you know, like when I was a kid drawing mountains. There we go, you know, kind of like shark's teeth or waves, you know. And then you get there and you realize, well, that mountain was first. And then you have to kind of work through. And then there was another mountain behind that. And there's another mountain behind that. And what looked like it was just the panoramic mountains actually turns out to be a mountain and then another mountain and then another peak behind another mountain until you make through all the mountains. That's the way prophecy is. That in prophecy, in prophetic, in prophetic words, they would have a near but sometimes a far fulfillment and they couldn't see that distinguishing. Even when we talk about the coming, that in the Old Testament, they, they saw the coming of Christ, but they saw it kind of as one event. And then Jesus came not to condemn, but to be condemned in the place of sinners. And then he would come again. And so there's a near fulfillment. He came as a baby. And then there's a far fulfillment that he is coming as a roaring lion, as a reigning king. Okay, and even within what we see that there will be a, a coming again for the church and there will be a coming in judgment, there's still a near and far fulfillment yet in prophecy as we read and study our Bibles. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul writes and he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then he says in verse 13, along the same lines of, as what Jude is saying, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Doesn't that call to mind that we should not just be angry at people, but we should actually have empathy that someone who doesn't see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory they're being deceived. Didn't we unpack that last week? There's a veil over their eyes. They're blinded by the God of this age, just like you were and just like I was. And so we're not wiser and smarter and better than anybody. We are simply trophies of God's mercy. You see that guy speaking down there in Richmond right now? He deserves hell. But instead of hell, I've gave Jesus, and now I'm using him to tell people about Jesus. God is worthy of worship. And this is just a ministry of mercy that we've been given. Loved ones, the coming of the Lord Jesus will be epic. And that's what, when Jude uses this Old Testament, you know, character, this Enoch, seventh from Adam, and he's talking about the coming of Christ, and he uses this, they were familiar with this, the coming of the Lord Jesus will be epic. Behold, the Lord comes, 
That is written comes. It's prophetic, perfect tense. What does that mean? It is certain. It is guaranteed that in the mind of God is as if it is done already. The Lord comes. The Lord will not be trying. Hopefully, it'll work out. He's sovereign over everything, every detail. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s, or your Bible might say myriads of his holy ones. Okay, so who is coming then? We see in verse 14, we're looking at who's coming? Who Who should we be preparing for? The Lord comes. It's Jesus. Jesus is coming. The Son of God that was condemned to death, he is coming Again, loved ones, Jesus will be revealed. You ever heard anybody say, oh, the book of Revelations, Pastor. When are we going to study the book of Revelations? Well, it's not called Revelations. You have to look closely. It's Revelation. It's the unveiling, not the unveilings of Christ. It's the unveiling of Christ. To be unveiled, Jesus will be revealed Romans 8, 19, Paul writes, for, this, for the creation waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, the second part of the verse, to the church, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that characterize your perspective this last week that you are longing for and waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ? He will be revealed. Jesus will be vindicated. When he comes again, he will come to a throne, not a cradle. He will come, not on a cross. He will come to reign, not to die. And he will come to judge, not to be judged. That was the last time he came. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, and Paul writes to the church and he says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Just, just picture this. Do you know how many movies try to recreate this scene? That a snap of a finger and population dies? They try to recreate... Every good movie, it borrows its theme of redemption and need of rescue from the ultimate story. And people who give no credit and no claim to Christ or the God who made them, it's written on their hearts, we need to be rescued. I need to be rescued. I need to write a drama. I need to write a book. I need to write a series because we long for this. We long to be rescued. We know we can't rescue ourselves. And it even makes the story better when the last person you thought would be the rescuer is ultimately the, what? It was her? No way. I didn't see that coming. That's what will be said about Jesus. The carpenter from Nazareth? Everything was made by him and for him, and he held held it all together? We thought he was just... His own family thought he lost his mind. Jesus, can we have a word with you? (laughs) Tone it down, bro. That's his brothers talking. 
lock you up, man. You're crazy. Until they realized he did what no one else could do. Death, I'm out. And we sang it this morning, and everyone who trusts in him, death, you have nothing on me. You have nothing on us. We have no reason to fear death. Why? Because I'm with Jesus. He killed death, defeated death. And this is the future of the lawless one. His breath, done. Revelation 1.7, behold, okay, don't miss this. Check this out. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And John says, even so, so be it. Let it be. Amen. Oh, Jesus will be vindicated. Jesus will be glorified, loved ones. First Peter 4.13, Peter writes, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You realize what the saints are gonna just be saying? We're with him. We're with him. We're on his side. Not on the guy done in by breath. No, we're not. We're with him. He chose us. He died for us. First Peter 5, 1. So Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as, fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as, here's what's coming, a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, that is going to be revealed. Do you see what Peter, Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration, so he already got a sneak peek. He already got a taste. Now think about this. Even though he had a taste of the glory of Christ, remember what he said? Oh, Lord, can't we build some tents? Let's call this a men's camp out and let's just stay here. Peter, zip it. Hear him. Enough of you, Peter. And even with that sneak peek of the glory of Christ, Peter still is the one denying Jesus on the night of his betrayal. But then he's restored by Jesus. He's loved by Jesus. Let that sink in when you fail and when I fail, is that Jesus receives those who come to him and, and Peter wept bitterly. And Jesus met him by the sea and said, I'm not done with you, Pete. Not finished with you. Have you come to the end of yourself? Yes, Lord. But what about John? No, obviously you haven't. <laughs> What, what is that to you? You follow me, Peter. And filled with the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that is writing here through Jude, the same Spirit through Enoch in the Old Testament, and Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost filled with the Spirit, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And the church is born. Oh, Praise the Lord. So who's coming with him then? This, this is important. We know who's coming. We see who's coming. Jesus Christ is coming. Well, who's coming with him? The saints and angels are coming with him. For sure, he's talking about the angels, but we also see in Scripture that the saints, and it's the word for holy ones, which is used for saints and it's used for angels. 
but this is thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Not like my high school basketball team. Christian school, we showed up to teams. I mean, we had to drag a couple guys who had no desire to play basketball simply to have five guys. And we show up at other gyms, and they'd have like the full team in a bench, and there we were, five. Like, I, I think they just probably laughed at us. And, and they, I don't think we won a game. We were horrible. We were awful. Five guys. That's different than coming with thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You come, in a, come into a gym like that. Like, is that it? Nope, nope. We got thousands upon thousands more. Well, you're not going to fit in here. All right, let's go to the stadium. No, you're not going to fit in there. All right, this is going to be epic. Thousands upon thousands, myriads are coming. And 1 Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's coming with him? And all the saints. We're with him. Don't you love that? If you ever get invited to a very, very expensive restaurant, and then someone says, you know, when they ask that question, uh, how, many, how many, you know, checks? And someone at the end says, I've got it. Wow, yes! I'm with him. I'm with them. That's us, loved ones. And Jesus says, uh, how much is this check? Your life. And Jesus says, I've got that. My blood shed. My life laid down. My body broken and they are with me, and we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Think about this. So that when God looks on saints, ones made holy, he doesn't see you as a sinner if you're in Christ. He sees you covered, clothed in the blood, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's all the difference in the world. That's what it means to be in Christ. You are either in Christ or you are in your own sin. And judgment is coming for you, but God is graciously holding off for you to hear even this message today so that you might be in Christ. Paul writes again, 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was not rejected, believed taken to heart. Saints are coming with him. Angels are coming with him. And we're talking thousands upon thousands. Angels coming with saints and angels. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You think that'll be epic? 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is coming. Now, Revelation 19, and uh, we're just going to pick up in verse 11, okay? Revelation 19, uh, I don't say it often enough. We have Bibles throughout the, throughout the auditorium and under the seats. Those, if you do not have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, you bring somebody with you, and they don't have a Bible, give it to them, okay? You don't even have to ask. Uh, we'll, we'll put more in there. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. Revelation 19 and verse 11. And John, this revelation of what he has seen. And then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. 
And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes, he's describing Jesus, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Does that bring to memory John chapter one? The word became flesh. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? This is, this is Jesus. This is who we worship. This day is coming. And then John says, there's an angel standing in the sun. And there's this judgment that is, that is unveiled and it's an invitation come because this judgment is so horrific. And ultimately the two are thrown in verse 20 into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. coming with saints and angels. Why is he coming? He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. He's coming to execute judgment. To execute judgment, Jude says, and to convict all the ungodly. He's coming to execute judgment on all. This is a divine retribution upon all who are without Christ. He's coming to execute judgment. Do you see how wrong it is then for someone to stand up and rob Jesus of his glory and say that Jesus, he's just love and love. Yes, but if you love something, it means there's something that you hate. There are two sides to that coin. If you love what is right, then you hate what is wrong. So he's coming to execute judgment and he is coming to expose all the ungodly. And here Jude uses a very precise word and lenko is the word. And it means to expose. It means to make visible, to expose the ungodly. Do you see how many times he used the word ungodly in that verse? That's why he picked it up from Enoch to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have. And then here's where it ends, have spoken against him. It's not just our deeds, but it's also our words. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, this same word, Ephesians 5.11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, children of God, Expose them. Same word. Don't cover that up, but expose that. Godless deeds and godless words, they're going to be exposed. Wouldn't you rather have that exposed in this lifetime than when it's too late, standing before the throne? That is why he's writing this. 
all of their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way, these godless words, and of all the harsh things that they have, that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Doesn't this sound like when Saul of Tarsus was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you. I'm after these people who are following you. And Jesus says, I take that personally. You are against me. These things spoken, these things done by false teachers against those leaders in the church, bringing about rebellion and and sinfulness, it's against the Lord, and the Lord takes it personally. So if we're going to unmask ungodliness, we must remember that old prophecy. And then we must recognize the obvious problem. There's something radically wrong with these certain people. What does God take issue with right now and in Jude's day and in Enoch's day and in Noah's day and in Adam's day and in our day? And he will one day judge. Their tongues. Look at verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Is this the list you saw coming? Let's unpack it. First of all, he says, recognize the obvious problem of grumbling. The grumblers. Okay, the Greek word is a word that is... It's, it has this, it's this murmur, murmur, all right? Does that recall anything, parents and kids? You know, hey, I need you to, you know, go ahead and get up. Oh, man, I don't want to get up. Oh, man. Hey, uh, can you take the dog out? Oh, man, Like, it's a murmuring. It's like a low, uh, even at your job. Hey, we need everybody to, you know, stay a little extra. Oh, can you, oh, my goodness, this is just asking too much. It's this low murmuring. It's this grumbling. 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul says, remember the grumblers? Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The Lord takes issue with the... The second one is complaining. This is malcontents. They're never pleased with others and they're never content with God. Whatever you do for this person, you should have done a little more. You didn't convince me yet. As if I'm the judge, the jury, the executioner that everybody should be worried about. They're malcontents. They're never pleased. They're critical. They're negative, And they're never satisfied. Does this show up in our parenting? Does this show up in our marriages? Does this show up in our workplace? For sure it can make its way into the church. Like, wait a second. We were all about the false teachers, and now it's like, what? This is how, this, oh, man. I was about ready to say amen, too. (laughs) Let her see pursuing sinful desires. Following their own sinful desires. They, they are the ones who follow their heart. Just follow your heart. Yeah, well, Jeremiah says it's dis- deceitful. It's wicked. Just do whatever you want to do. What makes you happy? Do what is important to you. That's not the message of Scripture. So this 
type of person that pursues their sinful desires. They might even call themselves a Christian. But listen, they do what is important to them. And Jesus Christ himself, the word of the living God, the church, the church leaders will not hold them back from doing what they pursue. This person is the opposite from the lovely saints who are known for loving and serving Jesus and worshiping with his body in a faithful way. Jesus first, others after that. And where do you find a godly person? You can't offend them. You cannot offend a thankful person. Well, thank you. I must have misunderstood. Oh, there went that argument. You turn that around. Yeah, well, we try to make it to church, but we've got this and we've got that and we've got the other and we've got this and that. Pursuing sinful desires. Okay, so just look at your calendars and look at your checkbook, what's important to you, and take that up with the Lord. Loud boasting. Now he's right back to the tongue again. Loud boasting. They're loud mouth boasters bragging about all the good they've done. Well, do you know what I've done? Do you know I, 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 I've done this, I've done that, and they ignore the wrong. Can I ask us the question, who are we trying to please anyway? Loud mouth, boasting, boasting against the gospel, boasting against church leaders, boasting against the truth, boasting against Christ. And lastly, he says, these are, these are smooth-talking people. They show favoritism to gain advantage. Today, we call this marketing. It's flattery to gain an inside edge for personal gain. This is the bait and switch. This is also known as a politician. Vote for me and, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. No more taxes. You remember that one, right? Next thing done, raise taxes. But this is inside the church. These are individuals who are smooth talkers to gain an advantage for personal gain. Listen to how a couple of commentators describe this. I, I thought they just succinctly nailed it. Shaddix and Aiken. Here's what they say. They are big talkers who say more about themselves than about the word of God. They portray themselves as the hero of every story, giving the appearance of a spiritual superiority. Such teachers find an easy target in the biblically illiterate and theologically immature. Why? Because they're masters of manipulation. So they empty the pockets of others and they fill their own. The suffering servant named Jesus is banished to the sidelines. And they sell their books. And they peddle their YouTube websites. And they rope in people who just don't want to be, I, I, just don't, I don't want to show up at the group and not know enough. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. It's a lifelong pursuit. So Jude is warning, he's urging his readers, remember the old prophecy and recognize the obvious problem. 
Let's unmask ungodliness and loved ones. Let's, let's, let's start here, okay? Let's start here. Let's remember what Jesus said to the church in Revelation. Remember, remember where you used to be? Repent and return. Do what you do from a heart that is filled with love. And Paul says this, and I love this. If you're here today and you look at this list, grumbling, complaining, sinful desires, boasting, and smooth talking, that's the list. That's the danger list. I'm like batting four or five in there. What in the world? Okay, well, what do we do then? Remember Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant, you to lead, meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is what leads you to repentance. Yes, this epic coming, is, it's coming, it's in the future, but Jesus is still the meek and lowly one inviting you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. A few questions that we can unpack this afternoon and as we gather in small groups. Can we see how Jesus is radically different from false teachers? How refreshing he is? Do we see how Jesus just stands apart and why Jude could never back down? And another question is this, why should we never forget the second coming of Christ? Isn't that easy to do with all of the distractions? Is just forget that Jesus may return before this service is done. Are you ready? Well, if not, then what's your next step to live ready for his return? Isn't God good to give us another opportunity to be reminded of what's most important, that he is coming are you ready? If not, he's listening today. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's stand together. Praise team, you come. Father, thank you. Thank you for this little letter that has so much in it. It's nearly inexhaustible when Jude references the second coming of Christ. We can study and we can explore, but we will never exhaust the glory that is to be revealed. We can't even fathom it. So we take you at your word and we trust you and we worship you. And we would pray, God, that you would work in us by your spirit, repentance and humility and that you would call sinners who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus today that the gospel, they would receive the gospel and believe the gospel. Do this work today. We ask for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.